Please take your copy now of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're returning there after a little bit of a hiatus. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we're going to be considering verses 27 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. As we read God's Word now, we do so as an act of worship. Please give careful attention to it. This is God's Word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would enable us to understand these words, to commit them to heart, to live according to them. Father, that we might be faithful to you, enjoying the blessed gifts that you've given us in the way that you've commanded. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. As we read these words, um, I was telling someone this morning that I've, I've preached on topics of this nature for a number of occasions. Um, on one former church, we did Sunday evenings where we dealt sort of apologetically with issues of the culture, and of course, the first probably six or seven of those was handling issues of sexual sin, and, and, there, and then preaching through 1 Corinthians, you think of chapter 5 and the issue of incest, of, of chapter 6 and homosexuality and issues of that nature, of chapter 7, the nature of the marriage bed, and it goes on and on. And there, there was a time uh, where I felt like we needed a disclaimer to say, parents, if your children, you think if this material is inappropriate for them, feel free to... Uh, go out with them, Uh, that's no longer needed. Um, Our children are being exposed day by day. There is an intentional effort to expose them, to to make this uh, sexual perversion, aberrations, uh, completely normal. Every single avenue that can be used is being used for this purpose. And so we understand from our experience that human sexuality is ground zero for Satan's attack on God's creation. Take as exhibit A, Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God went into the sons of men to have children with them to pervert and pollute the human race. God's first massive judgment upon the earth in the flood was was His response to sexual perversion. Exhibit B. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. It represented the city which knew no sexual boundaries. 
Now the world seeks to say, well, the reason that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah was because they didn't have enough hospitality. Uh, the problem was there's too much hospitality in Sodom and Gomorrah. But these acts demonstrated the weakness of man towards sexual sin and perversion, along with God's hatred of it. So now our culture is seeking to foster and to fester this perversion as much as it can to, to push the envelope. And so we, you and I, we are facing an unrelenting bombardment of sexual perversion. Uh, Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, does a, a daily podcast I encourage you to listen to called The Briefing. Was asked several years ago by a, a major uh, news outlet why he talked about sexuality all the time. And, and we, we're asked that, aren't we? Why do Christians talk about sexuality all the time? And the answer is simple. We're on the defensive. Because the culture talks about it all the time. The challenge that you and I face is, is a real one. We face this challenge. Speaking honestly, truthfully, about a biblical sexual ethic. Standing up for a biblical sexual ethic of pro protecting our children from the profane philosophies that dominate the public square while also presenting the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an illustration. Recently, at our own General Assembly, we were debating homosexuality and whether or not we could condemn homosexuality, homosexual desires in certain spheres with reference to the pulpit without also alienating a public who need to hear from the pulpit. Even if you struggle with homosexual desire, Christ is gracious to you. And we have PCA ministers who on their Twitter feed say, well, I can't invite homosexuals to my church anymore. I don't know if these men are intentionally profaning their own denomination or if they're really confused. But that's the challenge that we face, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to be faithful with the gospel. You want to be able to go to anyone and say, listen, the love of God is for you. The grace of God is to you. Christ died for every sin, no matter how perverse. If Jeffrey Epstein came to Christ, he would be accepted. But we also have to speak as honestly as Christ does in this passage against sexual perversion for the protection of our own hearts and the protection of the truth. Sexual sin is ground zero, ground zero, for the current battle over biblical truth. And what this passage teaches us is that perverse sexual desire testifies to a sickness of heart. And that those who do not find a remedy for that sickness of heart will suffer the pains of hell. 
As we come back here to Matthew chapter 5, just some things reminding you of a few things. We're, we're back here in the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus taught the ethics of His kingdom. We are reminded here in a special way that Israel's particular sin against God was one of adultery. They were an adulterous people. Their, all of their profane behavior, everything that they did against the Lord was sing, singled down, distilled down into one sin. They were an adulterous people who had traded the God of their nation for other gods. Therefore, as Christ teaches here on the subject of adultery, we have to think about our faithfulness to Him as our husband. And so He reminds us first that the object of the law is your heart. The object of the law is your heart. Here in verses 27 and 28, Jesus is dealing with the seventh commandment. Notice what he said there. You have heard that it was said, and, and some of your translations will add to the ancients, because that's what he had said before. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. So Jesus is dealing here with the seventh commandment as it was delivered by God to Moses on Mount Sinai. Do not commit adultery. And so obviously the question seems to come to mind, well, when have I broken that commandment? This is the question that most many of us ask, isn't it? We, we want to know how far we can go with the command before we've actually broken it. One of the stories that my parents told me about myself uh, was one time they were in a furniture store. And I was the kind of kid that liked to put my hands apparently on everything that was there. So my dad looked at me and said, son, stop putting your hands on everything. Don't touch another thing. And the sales clerk came to my parents later on and said, uh, your, your son was technically obedient, but he did have his nose on a lamp. That's how we think about God's commands. That's our, that's our natural tendency to think, well, how far can I actually go before I've broken the command? And Jesus answers that question for us in verse 28. You, you, verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By nature, you may believe that the commandment do not commit adultery applies just to an act. Jesus reminds us that the commands of God apply to our desires as well. Now, one thing to note is sometimes we think that Jesus is here coming and He's taking the commandments and He is expanding them. He's doing something unique with the Ten Commandments by applying them to the desires of the heart. That's not the case. There were many rabbis in Jesus' day. The teaching that God's commands apply to the heart was not a new and a unique teaching. The emphasis upon this passage 
is what Jesus says in the very beginning. Verse 28. But I, and here's the emphasis, but I myself say to you. In other words, we might take it this way. You have heard what I said in the beginning. You shall not commit adultery. And you have heard that on account of second witnesses. You've you've gotten second-hand reports. But here I am, standing before you now, God incarnate, saying to you that here is the full application of the law. Do not desire, uh, look lustfully upon a woman. If you do, you have committed adultery. Now, one thing that you should understand is that desire in and of itself is not sinful. Jesus said in Luke 22, verse 15, he uses the same word that he uses here. And he says, I have desired to eat the supper with you. Jesus was not in sin for desiring that, even desiring it strongly. And we would go even further. This is how we have to speak clearly to our culture. That sexual desire is not sinful. The Song of Songs illustrates the beauty of intimacy as God designed. When you read through the Song of Solomon, you see there a beautiful portrayal of intimacy between a husband and a wife as God has designed. There would be no such thing as intimacy in a relationship apart from creation, apart from God's design. He has given it to us as a gift. And yet, as with every other gift God has given us, we have taken it and perverted it. We have made it into something abominable. Sexual desire becomes wrong when it is wrongly placed. Notice Jesus said in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, and and here's the clarity of the Greek, with the purpose of lusting after her. And the whole thing is in the present tense. If any one of you is looking at a woman with the express purpose of lusting after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. When Jesus says you have committed adultery or, or uh, in order to, to desire after her, he's borrowing actually from the 10th commandment. In fact, he is quoting directly from the 10th commandment, which says in verse 17 of Exodus 20, do not covet your neighbor's wife. The law all along has applied to the heart so that Moses could say what you need is circumcision of the heart. So we can see why Jesus concludes that you have already committed adultery. Before you've gone into her, before you've gone into her bedroom or her into yours or wherever you would go, before you get there, you have already committed adultery. Adultery, desire, wrongly placed, violates God's command. And Jesus reminds us that God's law targets our hearts. The necessity of this command reveals something fundamentally flawed about you and me. 
It reveals something fundamentally flawed in our concept of love. We naturally love people as things, not as image bearers. We naturally love people as things, not as image bearers. As you're reading this, maybe you can't help but get a picture of Ahasuerus. We talked about him last week from Esther chapter 2. You remember the whole parade of women. His advisor said, you want young, beautiful women. And we get the picture of them going throughout the empire and choosing women based on their looks. You, not you. You, not you. Until finally, we, we, we found that Esther fit the bill. Why? Because she was beautiful of form and lovely to look upon. Ahasuerus was choosing the successor to Vashti as a beauty pageant. Your sinful inclination is to observe people as objects, not as human beings. Made in the image of God. Don't you find that the first rule of attraction is appearance? We do this with everything. That looks like a great meal. We often say my eyes were bigger than my head. And we do it with people too. So much so that we've created apps where we can shop like that for them like they are uh, tables on Amazon. But Scripture teaches us by many illustrations that shopping for people based on appearances is not a strength. It is a weakness. It is a flaw. And it is a potentially fatal flaw. You think of Israel in their very beginning looking for a king. And who did they select but the man who was taller than everybody in the village? The man or the woman who bases their choice of a spouse on appearances alone will likely be in agony just a few months into marriage. I want you to think about an interesting contrast. Turn over with me to Ruth chapter 3. Many of you would agree with me when we would refer to Ruth as an excellent example of a godly woman, even as beautiful of herself. Boaz, her kinsman redeemer, certainly thought so, but I I want you to notice carefully how Boaz described Ruth when he described her as the excellent woman. Look with me at Ruth 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. A worthy woman. It's the only other place in the Hebrew Scriptures that we find that Proverbs 31.10 phrase repeated. Excellent woman. Who can find an excellent woman? Well, here's one. The only one that we have described. It's interesting to me that there is no place in the book of Ruth where we see her physical characteristics described. But she is a beautiful woman. We don't require any description of Ruth's physical features to love her. Why? 
because she was an excellent woman. What made her excellent? Look with me at verse 10. Back up one. And Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Why do we not have her beauty portrayed for us in some description of her characteristics? Well, because her beauty is described in words. In the words that describe the character of this woman, she was chaste. And this made her beautiful. Consider how this compares to our love for Christ. His, his beauty is not depicted for us in a depiction of His appearance. In fact, when Isaiah 52 and 53 describe Lord, uh, the Lord, they say His form was not comely. He wasn't the man that you'd have looked upon like Saul and said, there's a king. But the word details the beauty of his person. We do not love him, in fact, because we have seen him. In fact, we are commanded not to make images of him. In 1 John 4.20, we read, For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It is this sort of holiness which makes Christ beautiful that God requires of us Therefore, his command not to commit adultery is aimed at your heart, not your actions. Our hearts are so prone to pervert love that we give ourselves to someone who looks lovely. We treat them as objects rather than image bearers. And therefore, his command not to commit adultery is aimed at your heart, not just your actions. God explicitly says that His will for you, we think about as, as teenagers or when we're in college, often we wonder, well, what is, what is God's will for me? Well, His explicit will for you, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that you should remain sexually pure. That's His explicit will. How do we do that? How do I even begin that journey to sexual purity, to, to maintaining a biblical sexual ethic in my own life. Well, this is our second point. We see that to overcome sin, you and I must fight against temptation. Look with me at verses 29 and 30 as we go back to Matthew chapter 5. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Uh, let's just notice, first of all, as we think about overcoming sin, one of the imminent truths of this passage that hell is a place that bodies go into. It is not a place of some sort of ethereal torment where you might have mental torment. Hell is a place where you will go in your body. 
There are some, as we think about the passage, who wonder, why has Christ, or why has the author of the Gospel, Matthew, why did he order things the way that they are in the sermon? He started with anger, and now we've gone to lust. We're going to talk about divorce and oaths. I wonder, did he sense the sins occurring right before him in the setting? He's got people, remember, seated around him or standing around him as he is seated. And he is looking into their hearts and seeing exactly the sins that are taking place right before him. There, he sees into the heart of a man who is at that moment lusting for a woman. He, he sees a, a, a group of people who are struggling with anger, uh, broken relationships, and he is speaking directly to their sins. And Jesus cuts them to the quick. Notice what he says again. He gives us a couple of conditional sentences. If your eye, your, that is your right one, causes you to sin, and uh, verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, there is certain action that you must take. These, these conditional sentences represent Jesus adopting their perspective and applying the logic of a pragmatist. For some, for some of us, the command is enough, right? You read the Ten Commandments and, and your love for Christ is such that you have a natural inclination, you want to obey Him and do what the commands say. When we speak of our children, we often refer to this type of child as a pleaser. We just tell them what to do and they do it. For others, they have to actually put the fork into the socket before they begin to say, well, mom and dad know what they're talking about. For you, the latter of the two in that illustration, these conditional sentences are for you. If the command is not enough, let's think about this pragmatically, Jesus is saying. For some, you rationalize these behaviors. You say, well, look, this command doesn't take into account that I was born this way. I mean, this, I can't be included in this group. That, this is the argument that we hear on the floor of the PCA General Assembly and in various articles. This is just the way I was born. Perhaps others of you are, read this, do not commit adultery, and you're saying to yourself, I'm already in the sin. This is, I'm not the guy who's ogling the woman over on the side, or the woman who's ogling the man over on the side. I'm already in the sin. I'm in the relationship. I can't get out. Jesus wants to reason with you for a moment. If you don't do something, then you will have no assurance of your life in the hereafter. And these verses represent two things to us. They represent first an argument to those of you who sort of snake your way around the command and say, well, technically I'm not violating it. And they are a help to those of you who desire to fight against the sin of adultery. Some, 
in Jesus' day, and perhaps in our day, believed that they would enter into eternity with the same deformity that they had in this life. They believed that if they lost an arm in battle, or a foot, or an eye, that they would go into eternity without an arm, or a foot, or an eye. And so Jesus is saying to you, what's better here? If you lost a limb in this life, Would it be better to lose that limb and still enter into eternity? In other words, Jesus is adopting that argument and he is saying to you, which is better? If you put the two on a scale, which is going to weigh more to you? Which do you value more? Your hand, your eye, or your life? Would you prefer to lose an eye or a hand and still enter eternity? Or would you prefer to have your whole body and go into hell? Jesus is saying to you, if you don't address the root of sexual sin, your heart, you risk hell Don't convince yourself that because you are not actually going to bed with someone not your husband or not your wife that you are not condemned. Jesus reminds us of two important points. He reminds us of the serious nature of sexual sin. At the beginning of the sermon, we noted two historic downfalls, two Two depictions of sexual sin that Christ intended to resonate on your mind. For those of you who who don't like to read books, you like pictures, those are given to you. The reality is that many in this room are likely struggling with sexual sin or totally giving themselves to it. How do you conquer it? Secondly, to conquer lust and sexual sin, you may have to take aggressive measures to fight against it. One minister, looking at this passage of Scripture, in the midst of his sermon, gouged out his eye. That, I have that on factual basis. It's a footnote in one of the Greek grammars. Christ is not asking you to gouge out your eye. Because we all read this and we understand that it isn't my eye, it isn't my hand that is causing me to sin. It's something much more lethal. But what he is reminding you of is that some of you need to take aggressive steps to fight against sexual temptation. Not, listen, not sin. Christ is not telling you to fight sin. He is telling you to fight temptation to sin. Some of you need to cut off social media. For men... It can be a playground of sexual enticement. 
oh, there's nothing explicit there, you might say, but, but there's enough there that you can, you can whet the appetite. You can still feel innocent by going through and looking at pictures and videos. It is a playground of sexual enticement. For women, we know that it exacerbates the cycle of discontent and depression over the perception of body image. Some of you need to cut it off. Some of you need accountability. Perhaps you need the aid of a trusted pastor or friend. Someone to whom you can come and say, I am struggling with this. And I want to take the measures that Christ calls me to, to, to take. I want to be held accountable. I want to get over this. Would you help me? Look with me at Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I want you to see this picture. Here in the final chapter of Galatians, Paul has shifted now and he's talking about some practical application between gospel and law. Uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Just a note here. When Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, he is, he's using a word picture there. It is the picture of a man or a fish caught in a net. And one of the things that we understand particularly about sexual sin and sexual temptation is it has an addictive nature. And those who are in sexual sin who have uh, uh, succumbed to it over and over and over again, it becomes an entrapment. There's a cycle of, of satisfying your pleasures and then shame and then going back to it again. In fact, we are beginning to understand that the brain rewires itself to crave and need that fulfillment over and over and over again. This is the picture that Paul uses. If anyone is caught in any transgression... Some of you are like that fish caught in a net. And you have so given in and so uh, succumbed to sexual sin that you are caught in a net. But what's the solution? Someone needs to come alongside you and help you. Look with me at James chapter 5. I know that this is a very private temptation, and you're keeping this a secret. Notice what James says in chapter 5, verse 16, to, to those of you who think that I don't need help, I'm not going to bring these sins to light. James 5, 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. And it is in this context then that we read the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Perhaps God has ordained that the power you need to overcome your sexual sin is the prayer of a brother, a friend. Now this is not saying as you are walking out of here, start confessing to everybody in the the congregation your sins. It is, however, telling you That there is a place, an ordained place, for mutual accountability. We think about this as parents, don't we? When do we keep out the thief? Before he gets in. I don't wait until the lion has entered entered into, or the wolf has come into the pasture to protect the sheep. I take the measures necessary to keep him out. Some of you need accountability. A friend who helps the fish get out of the net. We we live in a culture that wants zero checks on the heart. In other words, it is to say there should be no limitation on how I want to express love in whatever way I want to define it. Hey man, love is love. Whether it's an animal, a child, love is love. The hope that Christ offers you, listen to me now, the hope that Christ offers you is that He died for sexual sins. And sexual acts and desires. He bore it all on the cross. He didn't just die for white lies. He died for every perversion with which you struggle. And He didn't just die to pay for it. He didn't just die to soothe your conscience as you continue to indulge in the sin. He died to free you from sexual sin. He died to make you free. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to grant you that freedom. Listen, the first step for you who are struggling with this is acknowledging that this is a sin of the heart. It is a sin of the heart. Not just of the moment. If you're struggling with this, it's not an issue of a circumstance. It is an issue of the heart. And when you are asking for the Lord's help, you are asking that the Spirit would help you die to this sin. Perverse sexual desire testifies to a sickness of heart. And those who do not find a remedy will suffer the pains of hell. John Owen wrote, Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who does not walk over the bellies of his lusts. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who does not walk over the bellies of his lusts. He who does not kill sin in this way takes no steps toward his journey's end. 
What he's reminding us of is that the pursuit of holiness is a war. And some of you are not fighting. Some of you are not fighting. Some of you are going with the flow. Some of you have have so succumbed to your sense of guilt that you just stopped. Christ in this passage is inviting you. He is holding out His arms to you saying, take it up again. Take up your sword. Make plans to fight against your, your sins. To fight against your flesh. You've lived another day. Fight! Not against sin, but against the temptations to sin. When He looked at His disciples there in the garden, He said, you sleep. Can you not wake and pray with me one hour? Watch and pray. Not so that you don't enter into sin. Watch and pray so that you won't be tempted. The pursuit of holiness is a battle against the flesh. Are you fighting? It's my prayer for you and for myself this morning that you would so love Christ, that you would so love Christ that all the enticements of this world would wither in your eyes. Sexual sin? I have Christ. That your resolve to fight against sexual sin and temptation will be strengthened this morning And that right now you are preparing yourself, you are thinking about the fact that tomorrow you will be bombarded again by the flesh. There is a member of your body awake right now making plans to subdue you. Your flesh never sleeps. There is an enemy within, Christ is saying, what are your plans to fight it? Owen would go on. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. My prayer also is that God would graciously give you a greater measure of His Spirit to help you in this fight and that you will be equipped with the humility necessary to seek help in this battle if you need it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Again, as always, we are cut to the quick. You see our hearts. You know our hearts. And even seeing the depth of depravity that they contain. You determined, Lord Jesus, to take to Yourself a true body and a reasonable soul. You have demonstrated through men like Abraham and through David that You are ready to show grace and mercy to those who who fail. Who fail over and over and over again. I pray. I pray for my friends in this room who are struggling with sexual sin. I ask You, Lord, to give them resolve to fight. Not the sin itself, but the temptation to it. 
Lord, help us as a, as a body of Christ to be faithful to help one another. To with humility come alongside those who struggle. With humility to come alongside an accountability partner. Someone to whom we can confess sin and receive your mercy. Lord, you are good. We thank you for this conviction. We thank you for the remedy found in Christ alone. In whose name we pray. Amen.